0: Welcome everybody to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravella and I'm the co-host of this show. And my name is Tyler Buckingham. I am the other co-host of the show. We are very happy to have today with us Dr. Joseph Kunkel, Emeritus Professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, Amherst and Research Professor at the University of New England, Bedford. Uh, thank you Dr. Kunkel for taking the time. and joining us today on the american
1: shoreline podcast
0: absolutely love to be here
1: great well uh it's it's great to have you on the show today dr Kunkel. uh we are going to be taking a deep dive i think it's fair to say that we are diving deep into the world of lobsters uh which i guarantee to our listeners there's more here than you probably you ever realized and it's a fascinating world to explore we look forward to it but first let's pay the light bill peter and hear a quick word from our sponsors.
0: We have a couple of sponsors on the American Shoreline Podcast Network that keep us alive and going. We wanna thank them. Our first is Dune Doctors of Pensacola, Florida, a very fine dune restoration company for all of you property managers and city county governments on the coast of America. Get in touch with Dune Doctors for your dune restoration
1: needs with native dune plants, Doctors.com. And if you're over there on the Carolina coast, you need to give TI Coastal Services a call. They are an exquisite coastal engineering firm, and I understand they're quite busy these days. So if you have coastal engineering needs along the Carolina coast, go to ticoastal.com. Learn more about these guys. They are the best in coastal Carolina. And our good friends
0: uh, at LJA Engineering, headquartered here in Austin, Texas, but 28 offices around Texas and the Gulf of Mexico LJA Engineering, superb
1: coastal engineering firm, reach out to them at lja.com. Well, Joe, again, it's great to have you on the program. Uh, Let's just dive right in. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you study?
2: Well, I've studied a lot of different organisms, all the way from uh, cockroaches to mice and zebrafish, but since uh, about 20, a little more than 20 years, I've been studying pretty seriously the lobster and uh, its uh, structure and function. Originally, I was interested in its blood chemistry because uh, that was one of my uh, expertise in uh, biology, was studying the storage proteins and what they're used for. like yolk proteins, how they're used in uh, embryonic development. And so I started studying the uh, lobster on that basis uh, until uh, my funders, uh, that was uh, NOAA, wanted me to take a look at shell disease in lobsters, and I was drawn Crying and screaming, uh, I no, I want to study storage proteins uh, into the fascinating area of shell disease in lobsters, in the American lobster that is uh, a prime organism up here in Maine, and all of New England, in fact. So I, I've been studying lobsters for the last 20 years.
1: So uh, obviously you've, you've had a uh, long career of studying uh, critters, uh, both terrestrial and, and marine, I guess it's safe to say, but uh, tell, so what, you, you became interested in the lot before you got brought on by NOAA and the funding to do the, the shell disease. Uh, you were interested in these proteins. Tell me, tell us a little bit about what your initial interest was in the in the lobster, particularly.
2: Well, in the lobster, uh, goes through a molting cycle like insects go through a molting cycle. So they grow by they have this exo, so called exoskeleton that is the skeletons on their outside rather than our endoskeleton, which is on the inside. So we have bones, but they have. A cuticle. So insects have a cuticle, and lobsters have a cuticle, and that's made up of uh, protein and uh, uh, a polymeric uh, carbohydrate, chitin. And I was interested in the proteins that go into that. Those proteins are made in a another tissue uh, in. Uh, in insects, it's called a fat body, and in uh, crustaceans, it's called the hepatopancreas. So that hepatopancreas is this place where they make a huge amount of protein. It travels through the bloodstream. It's secreted by that tissue. It travels through the bloodstream, and it's taken up by the epidermis when they're making their cuticle. And you might think, oh, they take that protein, they break it down into amino acids, and they reutilize those to make the cuticle. No, they take that protein and wholesale, they transport it into the cuticle and, uh, and then polymerize it. They cross-link it uh, so that it makes the, uh, the protein base of the cuticle the other protein
0: that I'm interested in. Let me, let me, for the benefit of the less uh, scientific uh, part of our eye, uh, audience, when you're talking about this protein being formed in, in the interior, through the pancreas here of, of the animal, but you're, you're saying it gets to the epidermis. And I just want everybody to know we're talking about the skin essentially, which is the shell of the animal. So it it moves through the, but the the building material for the shell you're saying moves is produced inside the animal moves through the bloodstream ends up at the shell surface apparently the outer layer
2: of course they have this outer outer shell but it you know it's the rather the conundrum of the arthropods that is including crustaceans and insects that they have to build their new cuticle Inside the old cuticle. So how can you do that when it uh, is, you know, the old cuticle is smaller and you have to make a bigger house inside the old house? So that's the beauty of the arthropods and their ability to grow through these molting cycles where they build an old, uh, a a new larger house inside the the smaller, uh, old cuticle, and then they molt, and they blow themselves up into uh, by, uh, in the case of insects, they swallow air. In the case of crustaceans, they swallow water, and that just inflates them. And then they have to harden that uh, new cuticle in its expanded size. And after they have ex- expanded it they, and hardened it, then they start eating to fill in the all this new space. They, of course, they regurgitate all the the water that they swallowed to inflate themselves, and now they have to start eating to make their tissue grow.
1: All right, I've got some questions. How so? How? Uh... How frequently are, now I imagine that any lobster at any moment in time is undergoing this process at at some degree. Is that correct?
2: Yes. And uh, typically in the early stages before they're legal, the American lobster will do it several times a year. By the time they are, you know, a pound and a quarter uh, ready to be uh, Bought and sold and eaten, uh, they are only doing it once a year, and then when they get to the ten and twenty pound size, which are illegal to catch in Maine, those sizes um, molt uh, maybe every three years. So uh, and then and that extends so that they they can. People say that they can live for over a hundred years, and that's based on the fact that uh, after a while they don't molt every year; they molt uh, every three, maybe five years, once they get really big.
0: What is the lifespan of an oyster? I mean, an oyster, a lobster. <laughs> I'm not switching species here. I mean, lobster.
2: Well, that's just it. We don't know. Yes. We don't know. Uh, Of course, oysters are one of my other loves. (laughs) (laughs) Another show. Another show. But uh, the lobster's total
0: lifespan probably approaches 100 years, if not more. And the the maximum size, uh, the record is about, what, 44 pounds? A lobster of 44 pounds, is that the largest one we've ever caught?
2: Yes. I, you know, I, I don't really deal with those, that sort of information I understand. that is, I mean, if that's one of those, uh, believe it or not, or. Okay. But we record book. Okay. Like
0: so what's interesting to me is you're talking about the harvestable sizes here a little bit and, uh, uh, said we, we catch them around a pound and a quarter. Uh, those are babies, aren't they?
2: No pound and a quarter is a an edible is a legal lobster.
0: I understand, but ha, but in in the looking at it sort of in a lifespan way, it's still a toddler, isn't it? I mean, they're. I'm not saying they're not. Well, they
2: can reproduce. No, they they can they can produce eggs under that size.
1: Okay, okay. so they're reproductive by that point.
2: They're reproductive already, and it's just that they're one of these uh, what they call an indeterminate size organisms. There are relatively few of those hmm. in uh, in nature. What does that? Uh, mean? Another one is is the uh, the fruit bat, okay, which you got to tell you know, me what
0: what growing. indeterminate size animal. What does that mean?
2: It means that they don't like we're adults. You know we sort. As adults, we reach our maximum size, and we really stop growing. Perhaps we grow in girth, but we, and <laughs> That's maybe true. we even start shrinking a little bit. <laughs> but a lobster and a fruit bat uh, and a uh, South African, uh, uh, the Zimbus lavis which is a South African frog. Hmm. Those are three organisms that never stop growing. And that's a very unusual phenomenon oh. among organisms.
0: That is fascinating.
2: Usually you you level off at a certain size and then you eventually die. Okay. But, uh, but not these guys as keep growing
1: and then eventually die. Yes. Now, can I? I'm going to. And I...
2: lobsters have very few real enemies that. Once they're that big, it's really hard to crack their uh, skeleton or exoskeleton.
1: So basically, so they there there's no external threat to them as far as being predated uh, out there once they right. reach a a large size like that. Except yeah, and, except and for can, us, we're big predators. Right. Mm-hmm.
2: But they they also they're. Uh, Exoskeleton can be corroded. I mean, it can be eroded, corroded. And uh, so, some of the on these huge lobsters, I have pictures of them on my website. Some of these huge lobsters have uh, what looks like uh, severe damage to their chela, where uh, it sort of looks eroded away. And those individuals probably haven't molted in in three or four years and as a result um all the things that happen to an organism living under sea could happen to them okay. and they haven't yet renewed that's the beauty of the lobsters they can renew their exoskeleton periodically and uh, w- when they molt they come out this really beautiful pristine new cuticle wow.
0: fantastic so
2: But that has to serve them for the next several years in the case of the real large lobsters. Okay.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit. We're going to dive into the science here. And for the the folks that are listening, the point of this conversation today, Joe, is that we're going to talk about what's happening in the lobster fishery and how it's changing. But before we dive into, you know, the real science of what you're seeing in the water... um, Let's talk a little bit about the lobster fishery and the history of this animal and how it's been prevalent through time. Um, Tyler, this is something we were talking about beforehand and we're interested
1: in this. Uh,
0: well, down here in Texas, it's not our
1: territory. No. Well, and and uh, it's just such an iconic uh, food item, you know, in New England, of the lobster roll, going to the lobster shack. I mean, it's, it's uh, synonymous with that New England kind of summer culture, but Uh, you know, I was curious to, I, in my research for the show, I was curious, you know, what is the history of this animal? It looks like it's millions of years old, you know, it definitely just looking at it, you're like, that is an old darn creature there. So my first thing is like, this thing is obviously specifically evolved to exist in a, in a kind of narrow bandwidth that it's very good at, because it's it, at least that's the way it looks to me. And in fact, I, I believe I read that it has been around for quite a while. And the other interesting thing that I learned is that uh, it was. I you mean, know, there is evidence we understand that prior to European contact, that uh, Native people along the shore of, of New England and up into the Atlantic Canadian coast were harvesting these uh, critters. Uh, at low tide, they would do it by walking out into the uh, t- tidal area and either gathering them out of off the beach or by uh, floating above them in, in little boats and and kind of sp- gaffing them or stabbing them um, from from above. <laughs> uh, but they were they were consumed. They were eaten. And of course, very different type of fishing than what we are engaged in today, which is an industrial scale uh, fishing operation worth billions hundreds of billions of millions of dollars and I I understand if you if you uh, extrapolate that out to the broader economic impact of of lobster it's perhaps over a billion dollars so this is big business on the American shoreline today and uh, I just thought it was interesting Joe to kind of think back and you know 200 years ago uh, our relationship with lobster was was quite different
2: yes and uh, the story goes up here, uh, was that lobsters were being fed to the uh, prisoners, and uh, actually Massachusetts, once it became a state, passed a law that you couldn't feed a prisoner's lobster more than five times a week. <laughs> <laughs> of course they didn't have they didn't serve it with butter. My 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 rejoinder to that is well they didn't have butter. <laughs>
0: and, uh, <laughs> it it was a prolific animal and prolifically harvested and harvested not um through pots down 30 50 feet down but kind of along the shoreline. Wouldn't it tell us how the distribution of the animal has changed really?
2: Oh well um, 20 years ago, actually, the lobster, the center of the lobster population was south of Cape Cod. It wasn't in the Gulf of Maine. So south of okay. Cape and, uh, that may be a little bit difficult for people to think who don't think about New England, but there's a big break between uh, southern New England, which is south of Cape Cod. And the Gulf of Maine, which is which serves both northern Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and uh, Maine, as well as Canada, uh, Nova Scotia. So right. now, uh, well, ten years later, well, ten years ago, the center of the lobster population was actually in the Gulf of Maine, in the southern region of the Gulf of Maine. And now, 10 years after that, the center of the lobster population is in the northern part of the Gulf of Maine. So over, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, whereas prior to that, it was relatively stable. That is, the center was south of Cape Cod. And now, due to global warming, we are the whole population is moving north.
0: All right. Let's, there's a bunch of good questions here. So historically the range of the American lobster was as far south as Virginia, wasn't it? If you went way back.
2: Yes. You you, can still catch them down there. You can still catch them off of Cape Hatteras uh, in the deep canyons.
0: All right. And, and when you say the center of the population, and that's, are you, is that a scientific term or is that a commercial term? Are you talking about where they are caught commercially? Are you talking about sort of the, the dense population range? Explain that to us.
2: The dense population, yes. The, the population range of, of any organism uh, can be either global or it can be local. And the, uh, the, the uh, American lobster was centered uh, on the New England coast or the mid-Atlantic coast, perhaps uh, you could think of it. Because, I mean, New Jersey had a, a thriving lobster industry prior to the, the, the move north. And, uh, and I, I'm sure that there are certainly lobstermen or people who have lobster licenses in New Jersey still who will catch the occasional lobster you know just for local use for their own personal use uh, however uh, a the center of the population was uh, south of Cape Cod but broadly it, it it spread out its distribution spread out north and south so northward all the way up into uh, uh Past Nova Scotia into the Gulf of St. Lawrence and south all the way to Cape Hatteras. And um, of course, it was sort of what they call a normal distribution. There'd be the densest population, again, was south of Cape Cod and it just spread out uh, uh, gradually northward and southward.
1: So, Joe, uh, what so obviously uh, you know we have to use our imaginations when we're imagining these deep canyons and kind of this ideal habitat where the lobster would ideally want to live. Can you can you uh describe that for us? Describe the where the ideal lobster habitat. What are its characteristics? What's the water temperature like? What are they feeding on um naturally? Let's start with that.
2: Well, uh, naturally, they live in quite a few habitats. Uh, they can live in in rocky uh, bottoms where they will uh, have uh, little caves that are in the rocks. Uh, and, however, they can also live in in uh, mud bottom where they will make burrows, and uh, so they'll have a burrow. So they're quite adaptable in terms of where they can live. Plus, they they can live all the way up into uh, the tidal. As, as you said, they originally were collected by just uh, the Indians uh, wandering out in into the tidal areas, and uh, and and finding them among the rocks. And uh, yes, they do exist all the way down into the deep canyons. Uh, they prefer a temperature of. Uh, 15 degrees uh, centigrade. So that's
0: uh, <laughs> I don't Dude, I don't, even don't... <laughs> uh, 15 degrees centigrade. That's going
1: to be 59 degrees
0: Fahrenheit. Kind of chilly for us yeah. people, but not for so, a lobster. They like they like those cooler water they, temperatures. They Prefer it.
2: Yeah, they prefer yeah. that temperature. And so in the summertime uh uh where the the shoreline temperature uh rises above 59 they will migrate to deeper water and the the lobstermen know all of this and so they will leapfrog their their traps so they'll start out in the spring uh relatively inshore and as the um, as the Hmm. Spring progresses and summer progresses; they will leapfrog their traps further and further out until, um, so that they can follow the uh, the migration of the lobster into the colder water.
0: Got it. So let's just pause on that. the The animal's annual cycle is temperature sensitive. Where they are in the environment, from the near shore to the offshore. That progression in and out is a temperature-based migration, is what you're saying.
2: Yes, of course, some locations have a constant temperature almost all year long. I mean, some, okay. of, the, some of those uh, uh, canyons have right. a much more regular temperature. Uh, they're not really that much affected by the seasonal changes. And so yeah. some populations will not migrate. Some populations will migrate. Depending okay. Upon- so is it
0: safe to conclude based on what you're telling us here about the historic range? We can say from Northern Virginia all the way up into the St. Lawrence, up into Canada is sort of the where you can find these critters. But the center of gravity of the lobster lobster, not the fishery, but the animal has moved, as you're saying, in the last 20 years from Cape Cod up into the Bay of Maine. And so as a common commoner down here in Texas who's not familiar with the lobster very much what you're saying is that migration that movement is it fair to say that's a temperature based shift what do you think accounts for the fact that the population of lobsters has been moving northward over the last 30 years which is a very very quick time frame biologically
2: Yes well um basically it it is temperature-driven. However, part of the driving had to do with shell disease. Uh, the basically the the fishery south of Cape Cod collapsed, and it collapsed in the time frame of shell di- disease developing. And as a result of shell disease. Uh, uh, once we get into shell disease, you will will know that it particularly kills females that are reproductive. As a result, there was a collapse of the reproductive replacement of the population. So in certain areas, uh, like uh, Buzzard's Bay, which is right adjacent to uh, uh, Cape Cod and the uh, in Buzzards Bay, their fishery, the fishery caught 80% of the legal lobsters every year.
0: In in what time? Frame? When are we talking about?
2: 1990,
0: 1980? Uh, 90, 90. Uh, prior to 1996. Okay. Prior to 1996, 80% of the commercial lobster fishery was off of... No, Buzzards no, 80,
2: no. Eighty percent of the legal lobsters in the water in Buzzards Bay were taken out each year.
0: Ah, thank you.
2: They, they caught all of the, almost all the legal lobsters. There are hardly any lobsters that got beyond legal size because they were all caught. Okay. And so that requires a tremendous replacement rate and when you're killing off the females that are producing the eggs that would produce the larvae that would generate the replacements you're you're uh, you know you're you're going to end that population in that area
0: and that you're saying that that collapse of the fishery in Massachusetts is that Buzzards Bay Massachusetts
2: Buzzards Bay but all of north uh, New England. There's a there's a agency that deals with regulating uh, the fishery. Yes. In that in the New England, uh, well, they call that
0: the uh, the, the uh, North Atlantic Fisheries Management Council. Yes. Is that the, what are referring they to? They got
2: together and they said, "Oh, there's been overfishing." So <laughs> they were ignoring shell disease.
1: Yeah. So before we, and I, Joe, I really, we're, we're looking forward (laughs) to diving into shell disease because it's, it's an issue that is impacting this fishery, uh, still today. And is, and I think, I think it's fair to say it's, it's growing in importance. Um, but I do want to kind of round out this discussion about the lobster and, you know, we're, we're, we're diving into kind of the reproductive life cycle and how it works. And I, I kind of would like to learn a little bit about that. So um, <clears throat> when you're when we're thinking about this species, uh, l- can we just talk a little bit about how let's talk a little bit about the birds and the bees. How do lobsters make more lobsters?
2: Well, that's really interesting because uh, uh, Diane Cowan was an expert in that. and And anyway, there have been lots of people studying it over the years. Typically, uh, the uh, female lobster uh, will, when she's about to molt, will seek a dominant male uh, uh, enclosure, either a rocky one or a burrow, and um, When she molts, she's very vulnerable. She's very vulnerable to being eaten by fish or by another lobster or by by other decapods, other crabs. And and so she needs protection while she's doing that. She seeks out this burrow of a dominant male. And when she molts, that male uh, has the opportunity to mate with her. Uh, in her softened condition, there seems to be a, an optimum time for them to mate. Okay, so after they've mate, mated, she's good for several years. The sperm that the male transfers is stored in a, a seminal receptacle and can be used whenever the female—so she can go th- through several bouts of egg production— and that would be one per molting cycle. So one per molting cycle. So the next time she molts, she does not need a male to inseminate her. She can actually use the semen from uh, the original insemination. So, but then, she
1: still needs protection, right? Like she's going to need to shack up with another protection. dominant man.
2: Yes, she still does. Maya. My my rejoinder to that bit of information was where do the males go?
1: <laughs> yeah. Who well, you know, yeah. this is a judgment free zone here. Fend right. for ourselves as usual, right? That's what We're we gotta do. I guess. Or so. maybe you buddy up. You find a, a pal maybe. who isn't a, yeah. who isn't molting at that moment and you say, Hey, listen, I'm soft. I need <laughs> right need a little protection.
2: Right. Well, in any event, um, that female now has the uh, the sperm to fertilize the eggs. She then will, uh, in eating, she will put some of her effort, some of her effort, not into tail meat and claw meat, but into producing eggs. And then she will ovulate those eggs, and she holds them on uh, uh, on the underside of her abdomen. There's specialized Appendages on the underside of their abdomen that hold on to the eggs, and she will incubate them until they hatch. So, and that will extend her molting cycle by nine months. Wow. So, So when she's in a
0: reproductive mode, she can't molt because she's carrying the eggs on the outside. Right. And I see. And this is important in understanding uh, shell disease because. The molting process uh, clears the carapace of this disease. It's a... Well, you get... Well, I'm, we're
1: jumping in, so... Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, before yes. we get into the disease, I do want to like... I, I'm curious to know what got. happens to the eggs. Like, So, okay, at some point, she incubates them, and they're ready to be released? Or what happens next?
2: Well, they hatch directly from her abdomen. So, she's into down the water. at the bottom. So, she... Uh, they they hatch out and their little uh, larval stages. So they they go through they go through as larvae three molting cycles until they get to the fourth stage. Which uh, and the fourth stage will drop to the bottom. So, right. so- they're eating as in their early stages in the first three stages. They're up in the water column. Um, eating algae and, and, and whatever they can find, uh, uh, other small organisms. Yeah. They're a form and, of
0: plankton. They're a zooplankton, right? Yes, I mean, they're there are tiny the animals floating in the water and this is what, you know, little fish are swimming around and eating them. They're floating
1: yeah. until they get right. too heavy. Are they, are they visible? How big are they?
2: Oh, well, they get, uh. The they get to be um, a half an inch long at in the third instar.
0: Then they get too heavy to float, and they fall to the bottom, and then they become a tiny. Well, instar. they
2: actually, yeah, they change their morphology. They they eventually turn into what looks like a little baby lobster, that fourth instar and uh, that fourth stage, and then they go to the bottom, and start oh. up their bottom life. And yeah. then they will molt several times a year until they get to um, sort of reproductive stage. After which they will then just molt once a year. Hmm.
1: So uh, if they're free floating out in the water column, I just assume, and then they drop somewhere. Uh, not everywhere is suitable, you know. How do uh, I guess? It's just I guess it's a, it's a dice game at that point. You're just. It's just probability that you're going to, that the little lobster is going to land in a good neighborhood. Yeah, find a good well, neighborhood.
2: Well, you are, um, the, that female is producing thousands of eggs. In order to just maintain the population, only two of them have to survive.
0: Okay. Wow.
2: So, uh, yes, it's a, it's a, um, a toss of the toss of the die to say it nicely.
0: Okay, so what we've in the in the larger picture, Joe, what we're talking about here, and we appreciate talking to someone who's been studying this animal for twenty years and uh, knows a lot about it. In the in the broader uh, context, the implication here that we're learning about is that lobsters are doing two things are happening in the in with lobsters. One is they're getting sick a little bit now in new ways uh and they're migrating northward for a variety of reasons some of which is temperature dependent is that a fair broad brush conclusion
2: yes and they're and they're dying off in their southern extension uh partly due to the disease and
0: partly uh, and mm, partly okay. due
2: to the success of reproduction.
0: Okay. And a couple of really quick questions. What do lobsters with the big claws up there, the American lobster, uh, we're not talking about the Caribbean spiny lobster, but the ones up there, um, they are they are built to, to eat a particular kind of food with those big old giant claws. Are they fish eaters? What do these animals naturally eat?
2: Well, they're naturally um, eating algae, and shellfish so they're eating other shellfish that they crack with their crusher and pick apart with their cutter so they have okay. a crusher and a cutter claw
1: that's the big one i imagine is the crusher
2: the big one is the
0: crusher and they've got uh they're not a fish eating animal
2: not typically but uh, They'll eat a no, dead
0: fish on the bottom, but I'm talking about catching a fish and eating it. That's right. not typically what a lobster would do, right?
2: Right. That is not their typical. Uh, a they, slow fish is a dead fish. So do
1: uh, they? Uh, do they? Uh, predate other shellfish? I mean, are they out there, like battling a crab and going to kill it and eat it?
2: Yes. Yes, they will eat. That's awesome. Uh, other, other decapods, other <laughs> crabs, uh, and uh, they will eat other lobsters if they have a chance. Uh, so that uh, that makes uh, uh, lobster pounds a dangerous place to be because if you molt uh, with other lobsters around and they're hungry, they'll eat you.
1: Wow. They'll either, meet, they'll either eat you or they'll mate with you. <laughs> so what are they, uh? Well, they don't have
2: burrows. They don't have uh,
0: privacy. Sounds like you're screwed either way. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> anyway, uh, now, uh, but I, I bring that up because I think there's a, as we get further into this, the lot that ha- the, uh, the diet of the lobsters is, is relevant to the disease posture that's happening. But here's something that I think a lot of people may not know we all we know everybody boy, you know, surf and turf, you go to the place when it's a special night, you get a lobster, you know, it's not prison food anymore. This is the highest end one of the highest end uh, food products out there. And the let's just give our listeners a scale of the fishery. Uh, As I understand it, in 2018, the main lobster fishery, about 100 million pounds of lobsters are (laughs) harvested in maine at something in that neighborhood i'd be happy to get more detail from you and then the dollar value of this fishery the direct dollar value of the animals are around more than a half a billion dollars a year this is a very big industry financially and the secondary economic offense effects of the lobster fishery uh as you explained, may be in excess of a billion per year. Can you tell us something about the harvest and about the value of this fishery? Being a mainer, as you're a mainer up there, where all this is going on, to introduce us to this fishery.
2: Yes, well, uh, of course, um, it, it's an industry that is, to a certain extent, self-regulated, uh, uh, as uh, the lobstermen choose their locations to set their traps, uh, but they are very protective of where they uh, set their traps, and so a, um, a, a fisherman from away, which could be just any other area of Maine or any other state, who tries to set their traps in a certain area, comes into conflict with uh, local fishermen. So there's a, there's a lot of, uh, in some areas, uh, lobstermen Will have shotguns in the back of their, uh, hanging up uh, in their lobster fishery boat.
1: Well, I mean, I've I've heard that uh, in Maine it is legal to shoot a, a fisherman who touches your pot, it, or it's it's it, it, if you go and mess around with another fisherman's pot, you're liable to uh, you're liable to. To be really to yeah, I think so. Oh, is that a
2: defense? Well, I, I'm not. I'm not so sure how legal it is. However, uh, you know, I moved to uh, Maine uh, from Massachusetts and, and living on a block where I uh, we have some old time Mainers, and I was just reveling in how nice a neighborhood it was. And so my uh, across the street neighbor, who is a real old time Mainer, said. Well, you know, just you know that that house down the block there. Well, he was caught poaching on someone's uh, storage bins of lobsters. You know, they have floating crates of lobsters, and you know, one day he was found with a with a clam rake in his back. Wow. You know, anyway, he was just. I mean. These people are tough about their lobsters, and they protect their lobsters. And whether it is legal or illegal, uh, you know, you will get your lines cut if you're poaching on an area uh, where you're not known. You know, you may not have traps left no. to pull up, uh, and and um, even you know this this person was I don't know whether he was pulling my leg or not, but uh, he was serious about the, uh, the, the the concept of, you know, we mainers are tough.
1: (laughs) Well, I can see why you'd want to be territorial about it. I mean, this is big business. And, um, one of the, we were talking before the show, Peter and I was, you know, I think anybody who's, uh, been on a Southwest flight past five years and watched television on the flight has probably seen reruns of, uh, the deadliest catch, which is, you know, the reality TV show about the crab fishermen up in Alaska. Right. And um, one of the interesting aspects of that show is they've been, you know, over the 10 years or however long they've been making the show, the actual fishery regulations have changed. And a number of the boats that used to go out no longer can go out. They're, they're the, the number of fishing vessels, they have, have been cut back. But anybody that's been to Maine or can visualize uh, the Maine fishery, you think of, Dozens of of small boats. I mean the these crab boats. At least what I envision is a small boat, probably crewed by two or three people. Um, and it's just a different. It's a different kind of industry. And I can just imagine how people would be very uh, protective over their pots, over their territory. And of course, you know we can all think about it. If you're if you got to go further away, you're going to burn more fuel. Your cost of operations are going to go up. Um, and if somebody is come from out of town is coming into your area and fishing what you perceive to be, you know, your territory, you're not going to like that because that means that now you got to push up into somebody else's territory.
2: And you have a so-called legal limit per boat of 800 traps. That. That that limit was raised at some point in the past from 400 to 800, hmm. and you know they don't they don't set those traps all at once. <laughs> you know they they put the the traps are accumulate on the shoreline on the docks, and uh, in in the springtime um, you will see uh, lobster boats going out with just stacked high with traps. And that's only, you know, one setting. They, they need to do that multiple times to get their full 800 traps. And that comes to the, the, the argument uh, of uh, this, the so-called lobsterman's back. I mean, you're pushing the limits of the individual lobstermen in terms of how many traps they can handle with their mechanized equipment, there's a certain amount of mechanization. But I've served as uh, 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 on a on a lobster boat, and uh, it's it's not all easy work done by winches. You have to lift some of those traps, slide them along, uh, and uh, sometimes haul them out uh, uh, somewhat manually after the winch gets it up. In a certain, to a certain point. And uh, the number of traps is a is a great regulator.
0: There's
2: a real discussion of that. Um, over in Australia, they have a, a similar lobster fishery, but it's not for the American lobster. It's for a spiny lobster. But they um, they passed a law to reduce the number of traps uh, back from I think 800 down to something like 400 or 200, and they found that um, actually uh, the lobsterman's back went away, <laughs> and they made almost as much money because the price because they caught less lobsters. But not, not just one quarter of the eight hundred with two hundred traps. They caught more lobsters per trap, and because the total catch was down, the price of lobster went up. That's so that good. they were they were just as uh, uh, profitable, just as much of a profit, but on less effort.
0: Joe, let me ask you a couple basic questions. Uh, what is the season, the lobster fe- season? When does it start commercially in Maine? What month and what it starts when and ends when?
2: Well, that's a real that's a real problem. You have to ask the lobsters that because
0: <laughs> it's not a fixed the bo- period. Then,
2: when the bottom of the lobster, when the bottom of the ocean, uh, well, the bottom of the ocean in the midwinter is like three four degrees. You know, when, when it, it gets down to three degrees, the water starts rising, and it starts freezing on top. But down at the bottom, you're very close to that uh, uh, heaviest density of water. And at that temperature, lobsters are doing nothing. Right, and They're waiting for the spring warm-up. So the spring warm-up depends upon lots of different things. It has to do with currents and... And uh, the right. weather and but whatever. Typically,
0: though, but typically, the no. lobster fishermen are getting out and starting work uh, in placing traps about what month? I mean, it can't vary from anywhere from January to June. There's got to be a month where it sort of kind of starts, even though we can't say the day year to year.
2: Well, certainly May and June, they're, you know, they're getting their their, again, it's a process of getting all your traps out there. So they start okay. putting their traps out. Uh, uh in may and then uh, okay. uh, and and uh, they build up till the summer now one of the things about the last several years in the gulf of maine is that they've reached level uh, record level, levels of lobster catch of lap- lobsters being uh, brought in uh, and that is due to the warming the global warming means a greater growth rate of the lobster population. Well, huh. it's just maximized the number of lobsters being uh, caught that are active and being caught in the Gulf of Maine. So, I mean, it's a, a was a huge rise uh, uh, compared hmm. to the collapse of the industry south of Cape Cod. There's been a huge burst of, of, uh, population size in the Gulf of Maine, that has led to the, uh, lowering of the profit because the more lobsters you catch, the less you get
0: for them at the dock. Very interesting. So, uh, so we have a, 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 a fishery that, uh, that fluctuates it's not a limited entry fishery like you would have in the Bering Sea on salmon where there are a particular number of fishermen allowed to go out and catch salmon this is is this an open fishery and the limit is in what is the density of traps of, uh, available to any particular boat is that fair to say and I'm asking this no, is kind of limited by,
2: it's limited by the uh, um, a lottery for New fishermen,
0: ah, okay. Licenses. So there's a fixed number of licenses available. Yes. And, uh, do you know what that number is? How many fish? How many lobster fishery uh, licenses there are?
2: No, I
0: no. Okay.
2: I, I'm I'm really a, a laboratory and <laughs> <All right>. a <laughs> Not we, particularly interested in the sociological. <laughs>
0: Right. Okay.
2: But, I, but I am aware of it. But uh, and, and I know that they are right now they are bidding on, you know, there's a lottery and people are bidding on. Getting licenses.
1: Well, Joe, I think that it's uh, it's time that we shift the conversation to uh, really the, the core of your work uh, and getting into uh, this mass migration that is taking place and the shell disease. Um, and so let's, let's start off. I, I I would like to start off with, uh, talking about just the changing conditions that you're observing and, uh, the increase in the prevalence of this shell disease. Well, you
2: know, we're, we're, we're saying that these conditions are changing. Of course, we have people who deny that the changes are occurring. However, we've got lobsters that, um, we've got the temperature of the Gulf of Maine, which is has been increasing continuously, and uh, uh, so we have records to show that the temperature is increasing. Uh, and uh, also, ocean acidification is increasing. And the ocean acidification is perhaps the greater pressure uh, on uh, on the lobsters in that it is affecting the availability of uh, carbonate, to, which is used to make calcium carbonate in their cuticle. So right. as... As as the uh, pH gets lower, uh, uh, the available carbonate uh, disappears because instead of being carbonate, it, it becomes bicarbonate, which is a different ion that cannot be utilized for producing calcium carbonate. And so the lobster, in order to get carbonate, has to do work, has to expend energy to turn bicarbonate into carbonate uh, uh, for the production of their calcium carbonate in their cuticle.
1: So that means that they need to eat more effectively? uh,
2: That means that some of the energy derived from eating is put into trying to get carbonate instead of... Uh, being made into uh, tail meat,
1: right? So this is you know across the our entire network of shows, uh, Joe. It's always interesting when I we observe trends, and one of the trends that we always uh, see is that every serious person we speak with uh, is absolutely there's there's no doubt we're we're well beyond the discussion of does climate change exist and we're well into it absolutely exists. And now we're observing the impacts of it. Um, and certainly one of the sub trends of that is, uh, acidification and, um, the impacts that acidification is having on shellfish in particular. Um, and it sounds like what you're describing here with the shell disease and lobsters is, uh, direct result of both of those things. And, um, we've, we've looked at some photographs and I'll, when we post this podcast, I will include a couple photographs of lobsters that have shell disease so that our audience, you know, go on, go in and check it out. Um, but talking pictures, Joe, uh, what does this disease do to the lobster?
2: Well, what it does to the lobster is it makes it more vulnerable to this shell disease. The, uh, uh, you know, the whole idea of, uh, ocean acidification and just reducing the amount of bicarbonate and whatever, what it, what it's doing is making the cuticle, uh, less well protected from bacteria. And, uh, as a result, bacteria can land on the surface of the cuticle and start what we call a lesion. These lesions are little circular lesions. They when the as soon as they become visible, they uh, they're round and they have a little cavity. So there's a little cavity there, and that round cavity. Uh, starts growing in diameter, and eventually it meets up with a, an adjacent lesion, and they fuse together, and then you can have a rather large lesion made up of multiple uh, sub-lesions. And that lesion can lead down uh, to, the, to the epidermis, that is the, the tissue that's producing the cuticle, And uh, when it does that and it can eventually breach that uh, epidermis, then the lobster is essentially dead. Once you open the the lobster's uh, open bloodstream to the ocean, uh, it will not be able to escape from predators and it will be eaten very, very quickly.
1: Yeah, I mean that sounds that sounds like it's just got an open wound at that point. Um, now, well,
2: they're they're fighting at that point. They're fighting against the disease, and so they're trying to build new cuticle under the old cuticle, and this is just adding to um, the cuticle underneath the end, so called endocuticle, and, uh, however, that takes away from them making tail meat. So, uh, however, they can very often, they can, uh, survive until they molt again, in which case they can molt away this shell disease and have a new cuticle. But, um, if, if the, if the lesion is severe enough, it will penetrate, penetrate the epidermis and then the animal is dead.
1: So there is, it's not a death sentence for the lobster, unless it reaches a a level of severity where it it penetrates all the way through. Yes. Um, So the lobster could theoretically uh, go through a molting cycle and just replace its damaged shell with the disease on it and and survive through.
2: Yes, we're trying to actually estimate this. Um, uh, We're... We're, I've got a, a project going with uh, a colleague at Southern Maine Community College, and we're try, we're, he's brought into his uh, situation, a, uh, into his live tanks, uh, some shell disease lobsters. And we're following them and seeing whether we can, and we're taking pictures of them uh, as the shell disease develops. And we're trying to see whether, when it molts, whether there's any indication of those old lesions. Because we, I, I, I think I can see the shadows of old lesions on uh, what look like perfectly healthy lobsters. But they have, you know, they have this modeling of their cuticle that, where it's difficult to see any pattern. It's a it's a total modeled pattern, but it seems to me, from my experience with shell disease lobsters and and their uh, what they look like after they molt, that it looks like I can see the pattern of the old lesion. So it's possible that we'll be able to quantify how many lobsters have actually survived the shell disease. So these are all important issues as we try to follow the development of shell disease in the gulf of maine here
1: that is extremely interesting being able to actually because you know right if if the uh lobster had the disease and then goes through a molting cycle and has been caught with a fresh shell uh, there would be well maybe there is a way of knowing if you can kind of see the the through the you know, some shadow, as you put it, of the, uh, old shell with the disease. Yes. Well, that's very interesting, Joe. And, and what we we've gone for about an hour now, and I, I, I want to kind of wrap the discussion up a little bit, but I, what are your thoughts here going forward on, on the lobster fishery? I mean, I, the photographs of, of lobsters with, I would say severe, uh, shell disease are, uh, striking. They don't look, <laughs> I would say it's safe to say they don't look particularly appetizing. Um, it's sad. I, I think that it's, it's not the lobster that you, they're not the great looking healthy animals. They definitely look diseased. Um, so what, well, do, you, however, what do you see happening?
2: However, um, I have to say that, uh, I'm worried about, uh, what the new normal is going to be? Because recently I uh, was eat, was eating at a uh, shell at a uh, uh, a restaurant nearby uh, on a dock, and uh, I, I was not having a lobster. But when I got up, I passed by uh, another table. Um, and I was familiar enough with the person at the table that I could say, I looked down at their lobster, which is about a one-and-a-half-pound, two-pound lobster, and said, your lobster has shell disease. And I was, I was stunned. I had never seen a lobster with shell disease actually on sale. Usually those lobsters would be uh, routed to the cannery where they would uh, process the lobster meat and can it rather than uh, have it for sale as a live lobster. So I, I'm, I'm concerned about the fishery uh, uh, in the Gulf of Maine. The projection of global warming and ocean acidification would suggest that it's going to get worse before, if it ever gets better, it's going to get worse in the near future. And uh, so I have been looking for strategies to actually slow the phenomenon down. And so we have a project going where we would be feeding the lobsters. Uh, There's a a great debate about uh, lobster lobster bait, what you use for bait. Um, The... uh, uh, herring that is their usual bait is becoming more and more scarce and more and more expensive so the possibility of having an artificial bait that might be closer to the shellfish diet provide them with calcium carbonate in the the artificial diet itself that might allow them to actually protect their cuticle or make them a a less vulnerable cuticle uh, uh, if they had the right calcium carbonate in their diet. You uh, also have to make that, that diet uh, edible and attractive.
0: <laughs> so, so that's Joe, part let's, of Let's unpack the implications of what you just said. And uh, for the listeners out there, uh, the common bait used in lobster traps is herring. And uh, what we know from uh, recent decisions by the Uh, Fisheries Management Council, the federal regulatory agency, they've cut back the allowed harvest of herring by 70 percent recently, and it's causing a great disruption in the lobster community, lobstermen community, uh, because this is the bait that they use. Um, So I wanted to introduce that idea, but what you're suggesting is that by changing the bait in the traps to something that was more natural to their diet, something more calcium based, uh, shellfish, for example, I think is what you're suggesting. Uh, you can inoculate the population against this disease effectively. Is that what we're talking about is changing the diet of the lobsters in the Gulf of Maine to, uh, make them less susceptible to this disease?
2: Yes, because we cannot broadcast, uh, uh, marble dust or calcium carbonate into the ocean it's just too vast but if we uh, provided calcium carbonate in there in an artificial diet we would uh, some of that would be dissolving in the bottom environment of the lobster itself so that would be countering the the acidification at the bottom uh the water column is just too big yeah,
0: of course. to modify
2: it. But, but the that's, bottom, that's... it's possible that we could be modify the bottom, plus provide something edible for the lobster that would provide it with the calcium carbonate okay. that it needs.
0: Now, this strategy that you're talking about um, is an attempt to compensate for a problem that that is occurring and measured and and clearly. Uh, Uh, documented and that is that the the when we say ocean acidification what we're talking about here is a change in the ph of the water column right Um, and it has to do with the dissolving of carbon dioxide in seawater uh, which changes the ph of the water and this ph change this acidification impact is a contributing factor to uh shell disease is that is that a fair scientific conclusion
2: absolutely that's a very good description uh, it also includes all of our uh, other acidifying waste the nit- uh, the uh, uh, burning of fuel producing nitric oxide that nitrous oxide that becomes nitric acid and the, the sulfates from from uh, coal that rain down in the ocean and become sulfuric acid. So all of those things around a metropolitan area, uh, the you know the Washington, New York, Boston metropolitan conexus, uh, mm-hmm. are are producing more acidification. And up here in Gulf of, on the Gulf of Maine, we are getting some of that. Uh, acidification effect as well, so it's both the uh, CO two and the closeness to metropolitan okay. uh, business activity. Sure.
0: So uh, you know, and this is uh, this is not to say it facetiously, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm tempted to ask you, like, when did the lobsters pick up the hoax? Because there's a lot of people who believe that. Climate change is not real or ocean acidification is some sort of uh, uh, agenda to, you know, disrupt the American economy. The lobsters don't give a damn what's going on in our discussions in Washington, D.C. The lobsters don't care if the president believes in this stuff or not. This is physical reality. And the migration of these lobsters northward, a function of changing water temperature, the, the increased prevalence of shell disease, Uh, is a function of many, many factors, one of which is ocean chemistry and pH and ocean acidification. I mean, uh, is there any doubt in your mind that what's happening here is a product of, uh, can we broadly say climate change? Or how would you attribute the changes in the fisheries that you've seen over the last 20 years of research?
2: Well, I I have to say that You know, us humans are very poor in measuring those physical changes in the ocean. But we just have to ask the animals that live there. Uh, And it's not only the lobsters. It's the blue crabs that are uh, leaving to go north from the Chesapeake Bay. We're now having blue crabs in the Gulf of Maine. There were never blue crabs in the Gulf of Maine.
0: Really? Really?
2: We now have blue crabs in the Gulf of Maine, and our beloved Gulf of Maine shrimp, the so-called uh, uh, the, the northern, sh- the so-called northern shrimp, which in the Gulf of Maine we call Gulf of Maine shrimp. The, they're, they've closed a the fishery the first last four years. We haven't had them. They're our our beloved. Uh, we, we feast on Gulf of Maine shrimp, other than lobster. You know, we like lobster, but Gulf of Maine mm-hmm. shrimp was the iconic thing you, you ate at your uh, mom-and-pop restaurants and your stands and whatever. Gulf of Maine shrimp are just lovely, lovely shrimp. They're all gone north. And so everything's moving north. Here in the north, I just was communicating with someone in the southern hemisphere and asking them, yeah, tell me some of the species that are moving south. <laughs> because really? Yeah, in the southern hemisphere they're moving south. In the northern get- hemisphere they're moving north. We, you know, this is what we would call in biology a bioassay. You don't. You don't need to measure the chemical when we we can bioassay for insect hormones. That is, we don't have to do co- uh, gas chromatography to measure the amount of of a particular hormone in the bloodstream of, of an insect or a lobster, we can do a bioassay. And that is, right. you know, the, we can use an organism to actually measure the amounts that, uh, by its reaction to those amounts. And uh,
0: what we have here is a bio. population. What we have is a
2: bioassay for global warming. All the, all the animals that can move are moving north in the northern hemisphere.
0: Right. And none of them read the the Washington Post and uh, the animals are not reacting to a discussion. They are reacting to a physical reality, which is one of the reasons that we really wanted to talk to you was is is that this is this phenomenon, uh, which is a complex one, is is clearly occurring and has substantial implications for the communities that have historically we re- relied on these fisheries and the economy of uh, coastal communities along the American shoreline. This yeah, movement, just ask of the, the, physical, yeah. What do you what What does it sound like in there in Maine? What are people saying about this?
2: Well, first of all, just ask the lobstermen uh, down in southern Southern Massachusetts in the, the south of Cape Cod. That basically there are no more. You know, they've they've gone to other. <laughs> Hopefully, there'll be some uh, productive organisms moving north into their territory if they want to stay fishermen. Uh, up here in Maine, uh, you know, the the Maine lobstermen are um, are really making a lot of money at the moment, right. uh, despite the fact that they have to work harder for uh, their profit. Uh, there are plenty of lobsters to be caught right now. Uh, and,
0: uh, uh, Mm -hmm. unfortunately
2: the crash, the crash of the lobster population is in the future. And it's, it's hard to look into the future when, you know, you're putting your kids through college, you're putting your, uh, you know, you're, you're buying your cars and up here in lobster land, uh, the lobstermen very often have a second boat that they race that's only for racing. Hmm. And they have a wonderful lobstermen's uh, way of life up here. But <laughs> that, that is going to crash. And all of that is going to be uh, history if we don't control this ocean acidification and the uh, epizootic shell disease, which is the, this, this shell disease, the shell disease. that we're discussing.
0: So Joe, a couple, this is kind of, this is important about the relationship between the physical environment, the health of the fisheries and the environment and the community structure and the economy of coastal communities uh, we, we read about it a lot in, at Coastal News Today, uh, and so it doesn't sound like you're much of an optimist. Here's my question. South of Cape Cod, the collapse of the fisheries down there, the lobster fishery, you said was a function of, you know, the, of the, uh, uh, partly of the intensity of the fishing uh, it was a function of the susceptibility of female reproductive lobsters to this well, disease. I, I don't
2: really think it was a—sorry a, 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 for over-talking you, yeah, but it wasn't in. a function of, of, the, of the severity of harvesting. As I said, uh, in Buzzards Bay, they were taking out 80% of the legal lobsters, and they were replaced. Every year, they were replaced by, by uh, new lobsters becoming legal. And um, got it. So it was shell disease. The the the, the council uh, was really trying to cover up shell disease. They didn't want to mention shell disease because no one wants to think of the lobsters as being diseased. No, they don't want to eat a lobster that's diseased. They wouldn't want to buy a lobster that's diseased. And so it, they they were just quiet about that. Got it. And and blamed it on overfishing. It wasn't overfishing. (laughs) It was shell disease.
0: Are you concerned that that pattern is going to occur up in the Gulf of Maine where you are?
2: Well, we're already seeing it. I mean, I'm I'm cooperating with NOAA I'm going out this spring in, in May, May 1st through May 17th. I'll be on the so-called fourth leg of the groundfish survey. And we have a protocol that is being applied in all legs, all the way down from Cape Hatteras. They're examining the lobsters. And I've uh, presented them with ways of looking at and recognizing shell disease. And each lobster is looked at and, and diagnosed whether it had shell disease or not. And also, the we've got another project going, which is to see whether encrustation, so barnacles growing on the cuticle, um, are correlated with the shell disease. Uh, to see whether, you know, this is a, uh, uh, a cluster of uh, things that are happening to the cuticle. Uh, making it more vulnerable to, uh, and th- that would add to my understanding of vulnerability right. of the cuticle. If, is there uh, is a co- is there, there a more correlation? Incrustation-
0: be- hmm Got. I understand a correlation between uh, incrustating the barnacles and other things, and the underlying shell disease. And uh, right. yeah, I can see it'd be easier to, to, to detect, wouldn't it?
2: Yes, it would be yeah. another thing to marked down on a chart to follow. And and what we've found is that the shell disease is clustered. Uh, even though lobsters don't pass the disease from one to another, it is clustered. And in my interpretation, that means that somehow the vulnerability is clustered. And or that means conditions. that perhaps yeah. the local conditions for mm-hmm. the vulnerability causing right. the vulnerability uh, are clustered, and if we can if we can actually understand those conditions, we could actually have a forecast and say, in this area of of yeah. the Gulf of Maine, you should harvest everything early because if you wait, shell disease is going to develop. Wow! And so that would be a way of of um, uh, at least ameliorating the results that may be inevitable. That is, that shell disease is going to increase, and that uh, usually in the the fall, you don't see shell disease because they have recently molted, and they have a nice clean new cuticle. However, that some of those individuals are vulnerable, and the shell disease will actually appear over winter, so that in the springtime, you're going to have a a lot more uh, shell disease being uh, uh, visible because they've overwintered.
0: And I'll tell you, you know, it sounds like Joe, and, and this is out to all the scientists out there who are, uh, down in the water, down in the mud, uh, out in the labs and on the boats, uh, doing the work of documenting the conditions along the American shoreline. I think you guys are the trench warriors in what's happening, uh, on climate change and the first to see it, uh, while the popular debate may may be highly politicized, the the world of scientists and the world of the researchers who are deep down in the issues is not. And uh, I, I think it's hard to argue with the facts that you're laying out that the shrimp industry, that the, the Gulf of Maine shrimp industry has been closed for four years. It's changing. The blue crab presence in the bay for the first time historically, the presence of the shell disease. And we haven't mentioned the Gulf of Maine clam fishery, which has also undergone a tremendous transformation recently. Um, are you familiar with that, or can you enlighten the audience a little bit about what's happening with the clam fishery in, in the Gulf of Maine?
2: Well, I, I'm a, uh, 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 a clammer right here on Pine Point. <laughs> I, uh, if you look at the uh, surf clam uh, population distribution. They don't even consider Gulf of Maine. They haven't even considered Gulf of Maine as being a place where surf cr- clams are are collected. Uh, I mean, if you go down to Rhode Island, the 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 beaches are just littered with surf clams uh, shells. Uh, up here, much less so. However, uh, I can go out there uh, on my local beach and I can collect a five gallon bucket of surf clams and have, have a good clam chowder for the next month, uh, uh, from those surf clams. So, uh, yes, those, the, 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 clams are also moving. We have soft clams here. I'm studying where we have a project on the local, uh, soft shell clam. Uh, some people call them piss clams. <laughs> uh, you know, mm-hmm. they're your, uh, anyway, those clams are um, were used by the Indians three hundred and a thousand years ago on the coast, and we're studying the shell midden and comparing it to the local modern soft shell clam. Yeah. And we're, so far we're finding that, of course, the the shell thickness and density is decreased in the modern clam so that uh, the, the Indians were presumably, you know, were, were in the beginning, uh, eating healthy, uh, soft shell clams, uh, regularly. And, uh, now we're in a, an, an, era where again, calcium carbonate is necessary for them to build their shells. Right. And, uh, okay. and so, uh, we're, Following the, I'm I don't really follow the soft okay. shell industry that much, other than the fact that right here in uh, Casco Bay, we are insulated from almost all of the red tide that is affecting up and down the the, the main coast, the closure of a lot of uh, clamming, but uh, in our uh, uh, in our little Scarborough. River, which uh, outlets into into uh, 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 into the bay here. We have been uh, because the Scarborough River is such a small river, it doesn't bring uh, much substantial waste uh, or
0: nutrient public. load. Yeah,
2: uh, we don't we don't get uh, the red tide in our area, so we can clam even when clamming is closed. All all other places in Maine. So Second. in any event, uh, I'm, I'm really very attentive to the local conditions of clamming, but not totally aware of uh, uh, other than the fact that, you know, like blue mussels are being uh, aquacultured. Uh, there's there's a, a big aquaculture industry developing in the Gulf of Maine for blue mussels and uh, hard clams I know next to nothing about.
0: Okay. Well, as you look down the road, Joe, as a scientist who studied the marine environment and, and all of the species that you've worked on and, and uh, are you an optimist about where we're headed here? When you think about coming to the end of your career as a scientist, uh, what do you, what, what do you think about the future?
2: Well, Uh, Unfortunately, you know, our results may not be ready until the Canadians are (laughs) dealing with shell disease. Uh, Hopefully, we're going to get this artificial bait off the ground, and that may actually push off the uh, development of shell disease or the effects of shell disease. And, and also our ability to, to um, forecast how bad these hotspots are may allow people to uh, react to what's actually happening. That is, shell disease is happening. And I, I'm, I'm very pessimistic about us being able to stop the progress of shell disease. Uh, we may, at best, be able to slow it down. But that's going to be if we can slow it down. It'll mean a great deal to the uh, shell fishermen, lobster fishermen uh, of of, uh, of Maine,
1: and lobster-loving uh, Americans everywhere. Joe, yes. I have to say, I had myself a surf and turf for uh, Valentine's Day with my girl, and uh, it was it was really, really quite lovely, and. Uh, I, I think that the work that you're doing and, and the the research and understanding that is being developed of uh, on this particular fishery, but we could expand it across the the whole American shoreline and all of the fisheries that uh, tie the complex web of of our coastal economy, uh, this stuff is absolutely tremendously important. And Joe, I think the work you're doing is, uh, great for all of us who love lobster and want to be able to to go get one and and eat them. And I have to say before before we close out, you know, the lobster is a particularly, I think, uh, important species to think about here, because visually, when you think of a lobster, you know, you go to the seafood place and you see the tank and you can see them in there and when you get it on your plate it's like a it's a damn display it's a visual thing you have a big crustacean a big shellfish on your uh plate it 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 speaks when you're when we're talking about this particular uh disease and that beautiful animal being damaged and and being the the range being modified etc etc but when you think about that that beautiful animal on your plate and it not being the way that you envision it, I think that that will have resonance with people and uh, could help spur change.
2: Yeah, hopefully. Uh, Just in closing, I'd say that uh, just yesterday I visited a uh, a so-called inland lobster facility uh, that had thousands and thousands of lobsters that were being ready for shipment. And I examined as many as I could, and only found one that uh, had shell, uh, a little indication of shell disease. And that that means that there's been a processing by the lobstermen and as they catch them, that they are eliminating, but, but simply by throwing it back into the ocean, the ones that have shell disease. Oof. And, uh,
0: and so we end up with a sicker fishery. You well, take the good ones and you it's leave not the bad in a sense ones.
2: because it's it's not contagious. But right, we're you know we're only seeing the tip of an iceberg that um, is developing. And uh, the the question is, you know, how how do we talk about it? And I, I thank you for for hosting this because it's allowed me to talk. Uh, in a, a very open way, uh, about something that uh, you know, in polite society, in the polite lobsterman society, you don't want to talk about their industry falling apart. But right. uh, but and and actually, they're they're at a peak right now, as I said, because of yeah. all the lobsters growing because of of the warming, warming. conditions
0: yeah we are so, in the sweet spot right now but it doesn't yeah. that doesn't sound like it's going to stay in the sweet spot uh dr joseph kunkel uh emeritus professor at the university of massachusetts amherst has been our guest on the american shoreline podcast and uh and i know you're not a person who uh cares about the honorifics but joe i wanted to include your title uh Thank you very much for enlightening us on this complicated subject from the front lines of the American shoreline. Uh, We really
1: appreciate your time today. And if you enjoy uh, conversations like this that deep dive on scientific subject matters, policy subject matters, be sure to subscribe, rate and review the American Shoreline Podcast Network and stay up to date with everything that's going on in the american shoreline by going to coastalnewstoday.com ladies and gentlemen peter Ravella curates this website amazingly he reads every single article even the articles he doesn't post he's reading this i think it's fair to say that peter might be the most knowledgeable coastal news dude on the american shoreline in fact i'm gonna say that <laughs> but please subscribe rate and review uh, go to coastalnewstoday.com. Um, Peter, any, any closing words? Well, uh,
0: follow us on Twitter at coastal news 365 Subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and Spotify. There are 16 shows on this network from professionals all at work in all angles of the American Shoreline. Uh, we really appreciate all the listeners out there and the supporters. And we appreciate the hard work, people like Dr. Joseph Kunkel, for everything you do, Joe. Uh, keep doing it and uh, keep us informed. Let us know if you figure out an angle to make this better. Please give us a call. We'd love to have you back on
2: is said